patent debate and a pricing battle. Just another day in healthcare on this edition of Industry Focus. It is Wednesday, March 30th. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I have the Motley Fool's healthcare guru, Todd Campbell, on the phone. It's been a few weeks since we've done the show together, Todd. It's good to join forces again. Oh, I'm, we missed you here, so hopefully uh, hopefully you won't disappear on us soon. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. You know, vacation's a good thing, so <laughs> true, true. Give, it, give it six months or so. Anywho, so we're going to get into two kind of newsy topics in this episode. But first, I think we owe our listeners an update on Portola Pharmaceuticals, which we covered a month ago. What has happened since then? It was a busy month. You know, we, we anticipated that it would be, right? I mean, we knew that they had a study that was going on uh, for a drug that you know is designed to prevent uh, blood clots in in medically ill patients, um, and we knew that the data from that trial was going to get released probably by the end of March. And sure enough, uh, that happened. Yeah, Unfortunately, it wasn't the slam dunk that investors were hoping for. Yeah, the stock itself lost 29% in the one day when this study was released. I can honestly say I was pretty shocked. <laughs> yeah, it's disappointing. I mean, full disclosure, I'm a shareholder. Um, I haven't made any changes to my position since uh, the news came out. Um, you know, but with that being said, you know, so you bear that in mind. Um, you know, there are some some reasons to think that it, you know all is not lost for the drug and for the company. Right. Um, and just as a quick recap, so the drug that we're talking about that caused this share price decline is Batrixaban, which was definitely the drug with the larger market opportunity, but is actually, for me at least, not quite the reason that I became interested in the company to begin with. So there is still hope, not only for Batrixaban, but for this other drug, which is Indexinet Alpha. Um, if you're interested and you're not sure what we're talking about, go check out our episode from pretty much exactly a month ago probably four episodes ago, um, we dig in a little bit more about Portola. Or shoot us an email if you have any questions at industryfocus at fool.com. Um, yeah, Todd, you mentioned that you're, you haven't made any changes to your position. I haven't either. I'm also a shareholder. Um, I'll remind everybody that people on the show, we could have interest in the stocks that we talk about, and we do. Uh, the Motley Fool also could have formal recommendations for or against them. Don't buy or sell based solely on what you hear or what Todd and I say that we're doing. Um, definitely do your own research. But yeah, we wanted to give you all the heads up that there was some new news about Portola since we did yeah, talk about them. Yeah, you know, and Christine, I think just really quickly because we've got a lot to talk about today. You know, just to give people a flavor for for what we're talking about, as far as being disappointing, um, it was a huge trial, seventy five hundred people. Uh, the way the trial was designed was a little bit odd. Um, in order to test the entire group to see how well the drug did, it had to first be statistically st- significant in improving blood clots in a um, intent to treat population, which was about sixty two percent of the seventy five hundred people in the study. Um, you needed to have a p-value, which is measure of significance of 0. 0.05 uh, or less to test the greater group. Uh, they came in at 0. 0.054. So close enough where they still tested the entire group and across the entire universe of patients, it was definitely below 0. 0.05. But that still casts a little bit of doubt on how the FDA would view that information 
um, when Portola goes ahead and files for approval later this year. Um, so of course there's question marks there uh, on this drug. And then like you said, there's also indexinet alpha, which it would be, if approved in August, the first reversal agent for uh, factor XA um, anticoagulants. Uh, that's big because, you know, Factor XA coagulants are raking in $4 billion a year in sales, uh, and that's on restricted use of them because there is no antidote yet. Right. So essentially, all is not lost um, with this company, but it was disappointing news to hear that Betrixvan didn't perform quite as well as we had been hoping. But I mean, I, I personally still see a lot of upside to this stock, but it's definitely a hang tight and keep your eye on the news sort of situation. Um, so, our next topic that we wanted to talk about is also something that we saw a lot of news headlines on last week. And this one involves Gilead Sciences, another favorite stock of Todd and me. Hope you guys aren't sick of hearing us talk about Portola and Gilead. But uh, so, this one also involves Merck and Ionis Pharmaceuticals. Uh, Todd, you want to take it from here? Absolutely. You know, es- essentially what we've got here is something that we don't talk a lot about, which is a patent infringement battle. Um, you know, oftentimes we'll talk about patent expiration and how um, shareholders need to be aware that you know there are patent risks uh, associated with that. But we don't often talk about what happens when one company uh, is found to infringe upon another company's patents, and that's what happened in the case of Gilead Merck and Ionis last week. A Northern California District Court found that Gilead's Savaldi, which is the backbone drug used in its various hepatitis C drugs, did indeed infringe on some patents that Merck and Ionis co-own that stem back to 2001. Yeah, and so the Merck was asking for a 10% royalty on previous sales of Harvoni and Savaldi, as well as 10% going forward. So I believe right now they're only really They've only decided about what will happen to the past sales, but what the jury decided was that they were going to back out the research cost that Gilead had spent on developing these drugs in order to arrive at a sum. And so they arrived there at $5 billion as their number they were going to use in the calculation. Um, and instead of opting for a 10% royalty rate, they decided on a 4% royalty rate. So if you take 4% of $5 billion, then the jury decides $200 million is the appropriate amount of money to compensate for this infringement on a historical basis. Yeah, I mean, essentially what we're talking about here is we're talking about patents that um, are based on, okay, how does the drug work? Okay, so Savaldi is a prodrug, which means that you ingest it and then it turns into the active ingredient when that active ingredient inhibits the activity of an enzyme that helps hepatitis C replicate, right? So, Research that Merck and Ionis did back in the late 1990s into nuclear using drugs basically to inhibit the replication of hepatitis C was found to be infringed upon by Savaldi, and that means that anything that drug that includes Savaldi, including you know Gilead Sciences Harvoni, which is a another mega blockbuster. We're talking about billions of dollars in sales here, people. Um, you know, any drug that includes Savaldi will thereby infringe upon it. Um, you know, what the jury also said, though, is, okay, listen, we understand that a patent is only part of what goes into making a drug work. 
um, and the costs that are associated with getting a drug actually to the market. So therefore, we're going to allow you to back out the costs that you had uh, associated with, with developing Savaldi in the first place. That's how we came to those numbers. You know, it, it, it's kind of a rounding number, if you will, for Gilead and Merck. I mean, Gilead and Merck are huge companies. Um, you know, since launching in 2013, uh, Savaldi-based drugs have raked in in the U.S. about $23 billion for Gilead. So, you know, for Gilead to be on the hook potentially for $500 million uh, for past sales, uh, I mean, for future sales and for 400 million or so, or 200 million or so on the uh, past sales. It's, we're not talking about a, a huge amount of money to those two companies. It is, however, more of a needle mover for Ionis. Yeah, this is a lot smaller of a company. I mean, you think Gilead, they've got 14.6 some uh, cash and equivalents on their balance sheet. But Ionis is only a 4.8 billion market cap company. So clearly, they have a lot more at stake here, and so I, I to me it seems like the fast or the uh, past looking historical uh, payment is not going to be quite as important to them. Uh, it looks like that should come out to a little bit less than forty million, depending on what Merck's legal fees were. Um, but going forward, you could have a pretty big needle mover for Ionis, since as the co-owner of the patents, they get twenty percent of whatever Merck winds up getting here. So, if the jury sticks with this 4% royalty rate and you apply that to Gilead's last year's $12.4 billion in sales, assuming that that's going to remain steady going forward, which is you know obviously not exactly the case, but we're estimating here, that would mean that Gilead would owe around $500 million going forward and that Ionis would get $100 million of that annually going forward, maybe yeah. indefinitely. That's, that's pretty huge for this company. That's a big deal. I mean, Ionis has been around for a long time. They've got a great patent portfolio, but they don't have a lot of revenue other than collaboration revenue. They, you know, the, the, it's not like they've been able to commercialize, you know, blockbuster drugs yet. So, you know, last year they lost eighty-eight million dollars. So, right there, by getting a hundred million a year theoretically from Gilead, you've got a company that that could turn go right into the black. I mean, so yes, it's it's a much bigger needle mover for them than it is for Gilead Merck. But you know, investors shouldn't be investing one way or the other on this decision because Gilead's surprise, surprise is going to appeal. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, so this, this right. is definitely I mean, did not. Did anybody settled. see that coming? Yeah, of course. You know, we're not, we, it may be a rounding area error for Gilead, but we are still talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, so they're not going to just give that up willingly. Yeah, exactly. So this is really just one battle in a long war. Right. Stay tuned. I mean, it could be that they the, that this gets upheld, and Ionis at some point gets a nice big fat check uh, for Christmas that it can cash. But you know, that could be years from now. We just don't know. Exactly. So the next half of today's show is going to involve a controversy over a six-digit cancer drug price tag. But before we get there, I would like to talk about something that's unquestionably a great deal, and that deal is the Motley Fool's flagship newsletter, Stock Advisor. We are offering a really great price to podcast listeners. If you check out focus.fool.com, you can find more information about Stock Advisor, which picks new stocks every month for you, as well as releases what we call Best Buys Now. And these are our team of analysts look at all of the stocks that we recommend, and they pick out the ones that are the best places for your money right now. So it's a really great service for any investors of all levels, too. And it can be all yours for two years for just $129 at focus.fool.com. 
Interestingly, the aforementioned cancer drug that we're about to discuss has a similar price tag, but it's $129,000. Todd, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, this is a very, very interesting uh, development in the whole payer pushback, if you will, on drug prices. And you know, we're going to get into this in a minute, and, and hopefully we won't get too wonky about it for you. But you know, what we need to understand is that drug prices can be very high, and a lot of people are very upset at their high cost. And included among those people are members of Congress who just sent a letter to the National Institutes of Health uh, asking them to conduct a hearing to determine whether or not Medivation and Estellus Pharmaceuticals Xtandi deserves to keep exclusivity on its patent for Xtandi. Yeah, so there are a lot of components to this story that we're going to unpack for you. Um, first off, uh, let's talk a little bit about these march-in rights and whether or not they can even be used in this case. Okay, let's give a little bit of background first. So, obviously, um, for a commercial entity to provide funding for research and development, you know, they have to run a lot of numbers to prove to shareholders that it's actually a wise investment. So, as a result, a lot of things that may be scientific breakthroughs don't get funded. Uh, the federal government steps into that gap and provides a lot of funding, especially to the biotech industry, for the development of scientific breakthroughs and things like cancer. Okay? Um, and the funding that gets provided, a lot of it comes from NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Matter of fact, they have a budget that's about $31 billion a year, and about 80% of that money gets handed out in grants to places like universities that are conducting research uh, it, it, that hopefully will lead to game-changing drugs. Okay? Prior to 1980, Money that was given via grants uh, resulted in, that resulted in a patent. Those patents had to be handed back to the government. Okay, they weren't owned by the university that received the federal funding. Now you could argue that sounds great, but the problem was that because the government couldn't offer exclusive licenses, only about five percent of the thirty thousand patents that it had established up to that point had ever been. Uh, commercialized, uh, just a, just doesn't didn't happen. So they passed an act in 1980 that basically granted universities that were conducting the research the right to patent and then license their discoveries to um, uh, private companies, like in the case of Extandi, Medivation. Right. So Extandi is the drug that we have been talking about, alluding to. And so this drug was developed by UCLA with grants from uh, this money that Todd is talking about, which which is taxpayer money. So then this gives the government the right to revoke the patent if they deem that the terms are unreasonable. Um, these are the the marchin rights that we've discussed, um, which interestingly have never been used on a drug before, and potentially could set up a precedent that I'm sure a lot of drug makers would get kind of nervous about. Um, Medivation shares sank 10% on this news. Extandi is their only approved product, and it's it's a huge one for them. Yeah, it does $1.2 billion of sales in the United States alone. Obviously, uh, that's where the only only place that the margin rights would have any kind of 
of, of effect. You know, the march in rights basically stem from from that same act that was passed in 1980. And essentially what, what that provision simply says is that if it's designed basically to keep a company from licensing a patent and then never acting on it. That's really, I mean, so basically you're supposed to be able to show that American consumers are being harmed because either the patent was never used to create, um, a, in this case, a drug that could be marketed, or if for some reason the patent was being exploited in a way that was unsafe or, or somehow otherwise harmed uh, American consumers. That's when March in Rights theoretically could be invoked. Um, you mentioned that they've never been invoked to this point. So 40 plus years, they've never been invoked. There have been petitions. I mean, you know, Sanders and the other congressmen, you know, they're they're signaling out uh, extandy right now. But there have been other cases in the past where petitions uh, from nonprofit groups, et cetera, have said, hey, listen, you know, you should invoke these march and rights on on this other drug. And probably the most notable of that one is uh, uh, an AIDS drug, uh, Norvir, that was uh, made by Abbott Labs, which is now AbbVie, or at least the pharmaceutical unit. Um, sure enough, the NIH looked at all that information, they digested it, they considered it, and they determined that they should not be involved in the pricing aspect of drug research uh, or, or drugs that, that come from research, and that that should be legislated by Congress um, and not dictated by, you know, their ability to go in and do margin rights. So if anything were to change on that front, it could be a huge impact because the reality is that uh, there's hundreds of, of drugs now that are commercialized that stem from research that's been funded by federal programs. Yeah, indeed. And it, it does seem like Extandi and Medivation have a fairly good defense. Um, this defense is coming mostly from Astellas, which is a partner on the drug. Um, and Astellas says that nobody actually pays full price for Extandi. Um, in their response to this letter, they quote that out of 20,000 patients on Extandi last year, 81% of the privately insured ones paid $300 or less out of pocket per year, and 79% of patients on Medicare had no out of pocket costs at all. They also note, uh, mentioned that they have this access program that made the drug completely free for more than 2,000 patients last year. And so even though you get that big sticker price, these companies are arguing that, hey, you know, nobody actually is paying that sticker price. So you, you right. can't. Right. Although come that's at us. a little bit disingenuous on their part, don't you think, Christine? Because, I mean, they're looking at it, they're saying, yeah, but, you know, they're only paying that out of pocket. But you could, you certainly could argue that the high cost of drugs is in, influencing things like insurance costs. Absolutely. Or, I mean, it all goes know, into our healthcare bill. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, they're going to say that. And it's great that they have these programs that allow so many people to get access to the drug that may not otherwise have gotten access to it. I guess that it really is going to come down to whether or not, um, you know, harm is really is, is enough harm is being done by price um, for the NHI to, uh, NIH to act. Based on what they've done and said in the past with with Avi, it, it wouldn't seem to me that they have any interest in getting involved in in the price battle. But only time will tell. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I don't see enough that differentiates this case from the Abby case that I could see them having a different response. But if they did, it would have some pretty tremendous impacts on the industry. Yeah, especially in oncology. I mean, cancer drugs. <laughs> 
you know, I, I think I saw a study that was done, it looked at 40 years post the passage of the act in 1980 and said how many drugs had been discovered using federal funding. Um, I believe it was 40 uh, of 153 drugs were for oncology alone. And those are big, big, important drugs uh, that have, you know, really changed outcomes for patients and that bring in billions of dollars for the drug makers. So, yeah, there, there could be a lot of um, potential problems that would stem from, you know, exercising the margin rights, including uh, drug makers not wanting to license research that's, you know, uh, results in discoveries that, you know, from federally funding, federal funding. Yeah, the patent landscape here is incredibly complex and definitely not something that we want to dig into on this show since we're running out of time. But there definitely is an argument that because we have such a strong patent system in the United States, that's why we have so much great innovation in the healthcare sector and others. Um, the one note that I do want to end the show on it has to do with temperament, and I'd like to quote Warren Buffett, because we've talked a lot about news items and people having a really strong reaction to the headlines that they read. And then ultimately, it's kind of just that you need to wait and see. I mean, we don't really know how this is going to end for Medivation, or we don't know how it's going to end for Gilead and Merck. So, to leave you with a quote from Warren Buffett. Success in investing doesn't correlate with IQ once you're above the level of 25. Once you have ordinary intelligence, what you need is the temperament to control the urges that get other people into trouble in investing. So remember that calm temperament, that is where you'll find success. Thanks for listening, folks.